Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. We are in a crisis now, so we have to bend the curve of carbon emissions, reduce carbon emissions, and that's changed the way we operate. It is clear we can do that. There are amazing companies and investors and advocates making these change, and there are examples in every sector, from the steel and cement to shipping. But to do it, one of the key levers is finance. Hey, folks. If you look at climate change as a systems problem, which it is, it doesn't take long to see the important role of finance. Yes, there's phenomenal growth in ESG investing and in funding clean energy and climate tech. But so far, overall, our financial system has failed to factor in climate risks and climate impacts. Consider this. According to the Climate Disclosure Nonprofit, CDP, just 1% of companies provide the information that investors need to assess if they have credible plans for mitigating risks and transitioning to a low-carbon future. Large greenhouse gas emitters have easy access to capital, and companies are incentivized to adopt a short-term view, prioritizing quarterly earnings over long-term considerations like the health and safety of their employees, customers, and communities. So what can be done about this? Not many people have the expertise or network to think about transforming finance. And that's where an ambitious organization called Series comes in. Series works with large investors and corporate boards to create systemic change. In this episode, we get to hear from two members of Series' Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets team about the work they're doing to reshape the role of finance in climate change. Stephen Rothstein is the managing director and brings decades of experience to this question. And Yamika Kitu is a senior associate who recently authored a report that looks at the climate lobbying of S&P 100 companies. We talk about Sirius's history and growth, about an expected SEC rule change that could have dramatic consequences, about findings from the recent research, and of course, about ways that you can get involved. Here we go. Stephen and Yamiko, welcome to Investor in Climate. So glad to have you both here today. Thank you, Jason, for the kind invitation. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Excited to be here. And where do I find you? Is Yamika, I heard that you're in New Jersey. Stephen, where are you located today? Today in Boston. Okay, fantastic. And it sounds like your team is working remotely. Do you get to spend some time together once in a while? We do. We, we have two retreats a year. And then when, like, for example, when I'm in New York, I try to see Yamika or other things. So... Yes, but it's, it's not like it used to be. There's, a, there's almost two dozen people on the Series Accelerator team, and uh, so we don't get to see every, everybody every day. 
All right. Well, I'm sure you're making the most of it and learning a lot as you go. Let's dive in because there's so much to talk about. And I think we should get started by first understanding what series is and how it got started. Stephen, would you like to kick us off? Sure. So series started after the Exxon Oil Valdez spill with investors saying they really need to understand more about business and environmental practices of companies, not because it's, quote, good or not good for the environment, but it is, but because of a fiduciary responsibility. So, for example, if Exxon had had a double hull tanker, they wouldn't have spilled the oil. It would have saved the company lots of money, big impact on the stock price, and would have been better for the environment. That brought investors together. That's grown. So today we have a network of investors representing $60 trillion of assets under management from some of the largest, BlackRock, State Street, and others, and lots of small and medium-sized ones. And we help them on their sustainability journey to set net zero plans, policy work at state and national and international level. So investor work. We work with some of the largest companies, many Fortune 500 companies. We work on policy areas, both on Capitol Hill and in 17 state capitals in the United States. And then there's a series accelerator working on both corporate governance and financial information, which we can talk about. Yeah, let's dive in there. Stephen, you founded and lead the Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. Many people think of accelerators as programs to help startup companies advance, but your accelerator is a bit different. Tell us about it. First, I'm the founding managing director. It was really founded by the leadership of the of the staff, Mindy Luber and others, and the board. Uh, I came on in uh, January of 2020. There were two of us today with Yamika and others. And with the people we're hiring, there'll be 23 of us. Uh, so it's grown dramatically. And there's two main focus. First is on corporate governance. The theory of change is that to do something big, the boards of directors have to be involved. And so it's training boards, getting to think about things, writing articles, and one is about corporate lobbying, which we'll talk about here. And then the second big bucket of work is in the financial sector. If you want to move society to have net zero plans, everything in society works on having debt, equity, and insurance. So if you can affect the debt, the banks, the equity, the investors, and the insurers, you can move a lot faster. So we work with the banks, with the insurers, with the accountants, with the investors, both on voluntary efforts and with regulatory efforts from the SEC, Federal Reserve, and state regulatory efforts. Fantastic. Yamika, let's turn to you. You're a senior associate on the Accelerator team. Tell us about your role and what you're aiming to do. Sure. So my role largely involves researching how companies are engaging on climate policy and whether their actions line up with their statements and commitments to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. And so I feel really strongly about the mission of Ceres, especially with the accelerator. I wholly believe that systems change at the level of capital markets is what we need to be able to successfully transition to a low carbon economy. And especially with the U.S., who recently, you know, was not very far ahead on the policy end of things. It was super interesting to me, the role when I applied for the position. And, you know, my portfolio of work right now is is definitely where I want to be focused on, just getting companies to think about the actions, about their engagement on policy and, and you know, whether that's lining up with their overall mission of reducing emissions. Great. You know, and that's a good point to double click on. I'd love to back up for a second to really try to better understand why is this effort so important? Why is there a need to invest in changing capital markets? And, you know, really what's broken? 
What are you trying to fix? And of all the things Series could invest in, why is this focus on capital markets so important? So I'll start, and then Yvika, feel free to jump in. We, the world, are in a crisis. You know, last year, Noah said that there was $145 billion of economic loss because of climate change, fires, floods. I did some of this work in the 80s. At that time, I talked about this is an issue for kids and grandkids. This is an issue now for us. This is not a generational issue. There are people literally dying because it's hotter than it was, and many people died from heat stroke in the U.S. third of the people in Pakistan had to move because of the floods. In uh, Hurricane Ian, people lost their lives and tens of billions of dollars of loss. So we are in a crisis now. So we have to bend the curve of carbon emissions, reduce carbon emissions, and that's changed the way we operate. It is clear we can do that. There are amazing companies and investors and advocates making these change, and there are examples in every sector, from the steel and cement to shipping, But to do it, one of the key levers is finance. And again, imagine if you go to the bank and to take this simplistic example, one person goes in, one woman says, I want to borrow money for 100 gas stations. And the other says, I want to do 100 EV charging stations. Well, if you look 20 years out, what's going to have a better future? The EV charging stations. So the bank should, we want the banks to think about it in that context and the insurers. So we're trying to get the financial levers in place to reflect the real risk, the real cost of capital, whether that being buying a new home or financing a deal or getting a fleet for 10,000 vehicles. And a lot of it relates to what they're doing in their practice and what they're doing in their lobbying on Capitol Hill. Thanks, Stephen. Yamika, anything you'd like to add? Echoing what Stephen is saying, I think the system really needs to change. It's, It's not working and we're seeing the effects of that. And just the resounding effects of climate change will affect every other aspect of life. So I think it's really crucial to to address that. And, you know, finance sits at the heart of the economy. So I think if you can change where financial flows are going, then, then you can really make a, a significant impact in terms of how the capital market system works. So you're working to create systemic change by engaging with and working with companies and also trying to make changes to the financial system through the Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. And one of the levers that you are pulling is working towards regulation. There's something exciting on the horizon here. Sirius has been a strong advocate for a proposed SEC rule change that would require companies to disclose their climate risks. Tell us what is that rule change? What will it require and what implication would it have if it's passed? So if you take any problem that a family has or a company or a country, you can't manage a problem if you first can't measure a problem. Understanding, okay, how big is a problem? What are the levers to change it? So in companies, it's critical to have consistent climate disclosure. In why is it? Investors have been asking it for literally for decades now. Investors want to know what the risks are so they know where to put their money. U.S. is behind many other countries. There are eight countries that have mandatory corporate climate disclosure in place. Some, like France, have been in place since 2016. And so the SEC, after lots of discussion with with the public and solicitation of comments, issued a draft rule this past March. They're now considering the over 14,000 comments that will require, I'm not sure what the final version will say, but will require public companies, that's the largest six or 7,000 companies, to disclose some environmental information. There's a lot of details, 
which companies, what are they going to disclose, timelines. We don't know what the SEC will say. I'm happy to talk about some of the details. Again, this is just the public companies. So the six or seven or 8,000 of the over a million companies that exist, but it's some of the largest companies. So that investors, customers, employees can all have that. Again, we can't get to a net zero future. President Biden has said that the goal for the United States is to reduce our admissions by 50 to 52% by 2030. You can't reduce it by 50% if you don't know where you are today. You don't know what's causing it. And so by having that detailed plan, so this is a critical element, and we give the SEC a lot of credit. They're doing a very detailed look, and we hope they'll be coming out with a uh, rule in the coming weeks. You mentioned that there was a public comments period that received, I think you said, over 10,000 comments. And I believe Ceres followed that public comments period closely. What did you learn about sentiments about this rule change? So first, let me give a little context. Ceres had our, the first meeting with the SEC with investors in 2003. So this is a discussion that was going on literally for decades. Then in 2010, the SEC established the Climate Disclosure Guideline, not a requirement, but a guideline. So they've been doing this for a while. In fact, the first rule the SEC talked about environment was in 1971 during the Nixon administration. So this is not a new issue from a climate risk perspective. Then in 21, the then chair of the SEC asked the, the market, do you think we should have a rule? Got overwhelming support. Then in, in March of 22, we should a draft rule, got over 14,000 comments. And 80% of the people who responded are supportive. That doesn't mean they love every single provision, but generally support in the direction of travel. If you look at the investors, and we evaluated, Jason, all the investor letters, hundreds of the institutional investor letters, they were over 90% supportive across the board for the many provisions. If you look at the companies, there's a variety. Some companies think this is a great thing and they support as it is. Some like the principle, but didn't like the details. And some companies don't want the government to ask them any more information. And so are opposed to this. They were opposed to food labeling and other kinds of things. So there's a wide range, but this is driven not by environmentalists. This is driven by investors. And the SEC is not an environmental agency, but a financial disclosure agency, meaning they're not telling companies you should use solar or you shouldn't use this or any kind of fuel. All they're saying is just disclose what you're doing and then the market will speak. And we're very excited, fundamentally believe that if the market has good information, it will make the right choice. So what's interesting is also that regulators in the EU and in other markets are passing their own disclosure laws as well. And so in some ways, moving slowly on our own rules could put the US-based companies at a disadvantage, but it really paints a picture that this is the future, this is where we're going. And what will the implications be? It seems like just disclosing your impact or disclosing your risks is one thing, but what kind of pressure does it create to actually compel these organizations to change? First is we hope, and we know the SEC is an active conversation with the regulatory agencies around the world, because we hope there is some harmonization, right? And there is a lot in the draft rule. We'll see what the final rule says. That's important. So what happens is as people understand things, they make good judgments. So when some of us started to see calorie and other nutritional information on food, some people changed their eating habits because they understood more. For this, investors have said that this will help them to make decisions. So, and if there's no rule, then the U.S. will just have to follow the, the U.S. companies will just be burdened by the international rules. So it's very important that we have SEC rules. And 
This will help to share information. So if you're an investor, you want to looking at five different restaurant chains or cement companies or agricultural companies or whatever it is. And one of the factors, not the only thing, but one of the factors is to understand their climate risk. Now you can't get that. We live in a climate tower babble where there's a lot of information, but it doesn't talk to each other well. Under this, the rule, there will be a consistent measure. Imagine, for example, that companies want to think about what to invest and there were not audited financial statements then people wouldn't be able to look at the finances. That's where we are today. And this rule is a very important next step. But it's in line with what the SEC has been doing, financial disclosure, not environmental regulation, for the last almost 90 years. You mentioned that the rule isn't popular with everyone. So it brings up the reality that while you are working hard to accelerate a change in how capital markets lead to more sustainable businesses, there's many people who are resisting that change. And this brings up the resistance we've been seeing to ESG overall. So I'm curious, what are both your thoughts about that resistance? And will tracking, reporting, and working to improve corporate environmental, social, and governance actions continue to be controversial? Or do you believe that ESG will continue to take off and perhaps even usher in a different type of capitalism over the long term? I think the answer to both questions are both. I think that it will continue to take off but it'll still be controversial. Unfortunately, there are many, many countries where the issue of climate risk is no longer debated. It's a fact and people are moving forward, not is there a risk, but then, okay, what are the steps? In our country, there is still a minority group of people, but there's still some who debate that issue and it's become polarized with the parties. Having said that, we're seeing enormous movement. I mean, to give a context, five years ago, not a single institutional investor had made a net zero commitment, not a single one. Just last month at COP27, investors representing $66 trillion of assets under management said that they're moving their assets over time to get to net zero. Now, from serious perspective, not fast enough. We all have to do more, but that's $66 trillion. That's real dollars. In the federal government, they've taken 230 separate regulatory actions. There are dozens of countries that have done stuff. There are states. There are lots of other things. So yes, there is a lot of movement. More money is being moved to ESG funds or climate funds than ever before. But there's, it is still controversial with some people. And part of it is there's this expression that people like progress. They just don't like change. When you're in the middle of it, it's hard to know what you're getting, whether it's progress or change. So this is progress, but it also is change. And for some people, that's harder. I think especially as we're working with these investors that they see which way the tide is turning and on the global scale as well, the direction of things are very favorable in terms of more climate friendly investments. And I think it's maybe just a matter of time until the rest of, of those people that are against this ESG trend kind of catch on and see that it's it's more than a trend and actually is you know something meaningful that is in the long term will benefit their communities. Yumika, you recently authored an analysis of the lobbying activity of S&P 100 companies. And this falls into that lever of engaging with companies and monitoring their ESG efforts. Tell us about that report. What was its purpose and what did you learn? 
The purpose of the report is to um, look at the level of alignment between corporate climate commitments and statements on um, emissions reductions and their engagement on climate policy, whether that's direct advocacy or indirect advocacy through trade associations. So what we're seeing is um, a lot of the companies have the right processes in place in terms of assessing the climate risks. Most of them have set either net zero or emissions reductions targets. You know, they're disclosing the fact that they see climate change as a material risk in their 10K filings. And they also have pretty comprehensive board oversight of these risks and the decision-making processes that are happening. On the other hand, only 50% of companies from the benchmark engage directly on climate policy. So it's a significant improvement from the last time we did the benchmark in 2021, it's about 10%. So, and about half of the cohort of companies that we looked at. But at the same time, 29% of companies are still lobbying against climate policy. And the majority of them have not taken any steps to address the misalignment between them and their trade associations and their positions on climate policy. So, this is pretty significant for companies to consider. You know, they have all the right mechanisms and systems in place and the strategy to address the emissions reduction curve. But at the same time, they are, in essence, working against themselves and, you know, sabotaging their strategy by being members of these trade associations or paying into trade associations that are obstructive against climate policy. Yeah, it's an amazing finding to me and one that I think that will be really perhaps surprising and actually helpful for sustainability leaders at large companies. There they are working hard, investing in doing the right things and transforming their company, working to improve their lobbying and make sure they're on the right side of policies. And on the other hand, they're just part of industry associations that they fund, and those associations are lobbying to undo the work that they're doing. So I imagine many of them will be surprised and that this report could actually be really helpful for them to try to undo that negative impact of their associations. I'm curious, though, have you started hearing from any sustainability leaders that were surprised by your findings? And what can sustainability leaders at large companies do to make sure their work isn't being undone by partner associations? Many of the companies that we engaged with or had conversations with were I wouldn't necessarily say surprised by the findings. They were more interested in seeing how they can take action to address the misalignment between their positions and their trade associations. So a lot of them were looking for best practice examples, opportunities for advocacy and kind of towing the line between not leaving the trade association, but also being vocal enough to make their position clear that they would like more positive engagement on climate policy. So, you know, in terms of like what investors are looking for for trade association disclosure, there's a number of points that we would like the companies to touch on, like, you know, whether they've addressed if their trade association's position on lobbying is in line with the Paris Agreement, have they taken any steps to engage with the trade association if it is misaligned, what are some specific policies that they've worked with them on. So that's the kind of disclosure that we're looking for and how we're hoping that companies can address this level of misalignment and hopefully get their trade associations on track to being more favorable towards these climate policies. And so, for example, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, there's a group of companies that formed the Climate Solutions Working Group. And so they work within the chamber to get the chamber to be more favorable on some of these policies that have been passed recently. If we think about this is a big change we're making in our economy. So 
how does it happen? It happens at the company level. It happens at the individual level. But it also happens at the government level. I mean, looking at a positive thing, the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest package in the history of the United States or in the world on climate. But many of these companies who say they're climate leaders, and I think are honestly trying to do a good job, lobbied against it. That is completely inconsistent, not just with public policy, but what they say. And so we're just saying to the companies, if you say you're a climate leader, you can't be a climate leader if you're lobbying against the biggest climate bill or many other bills as well, or if you're giving money to a trade association, and you're not even asking them about their positions, but you know fundamentally they're opposed to it. So we don't have the time to go through this. And 29% of the companies lobbied against, specifically against a climate initiative. So this is really important. And we saw in the last two years from the IRA and other things, the importance of that, as is the SEC. There are companies that say they're for climate, but they wrote letters opposed to what the SEC is doing. You briefly said there that we don't have a lot of time. And I want to turn to that because while the report that you just described and the SEC rule change really exemplify how series can help accelerate the transition to better designed capital markets, they also strike me as requiring a ton of work and a ton of patience. And perhaps that's just part of what comes with trying to transform something as entrenched as our how our financial system works. But I'm also curious, are there other approaches you think about that offer even greater leverage? What would be a home run for you that would accelerate change to a much greater degree? So a home run for me would be cloning Yamika because she does such a great job. So we had more people that could do the remarkable work that she does and the other team members on the series accelerator team. In terms of results, it is getting three branches of a tree or, or of stools, companies, investors, and government entities working together. And we see it now in lots of cases where that is working. And we've seen insurance companies, we've seen lots of industries where they are moving faster because of government, because of company leadership, and because of investors. But we need to do a lot more of that. Also, our colleagues in the environmental movement who are more activists, they play a critical role. Obviously, the work that you're doing and journalism, talking about it as a critical role. Legislators and regulators play a critical role. So it's all working together. President Biden has said that this is an all-of-government initiative. It's really an all-of-society to do this. And I'm thrilled at the one hand, I'm an incurable optimist, and I've seen lots of change. I'm excited about what we've seen in the last three or four years, but also I'm sobered by the fires and floods and the droughts and the misery that it's seeing. And Mother Nature doesn't know whether people are Democrats or Republicans. And like a lot of the issues in our society, it affects all of us, but it affects low-income individuals the most. They're the most on the front lines of this. So we have an obligation to all of our society but also to our fellow citizens today. I'm going to push you on this. And Yumika, I'd love to hear your thoughts too, because what you just described sounds a lot like what's happening, but you're just asking for it to happen better. Multi-stakeholder collaboration, all sectors leaning in, and the hard, slow process of collaborating and thinking about a new system. Let's say something like COVID happened, a climate impact, a climate disaster that we don't want to think about it, but it created some sort of devastation that really changed the time frame that we think that we can operate under, changed the level of urgency, changed the political will, and just the willingness across the board for people to make dramatic change. If you have that will, 
what would you change that really changes the system in a dramatic way much more quickly? We have that. I'll give you two examples. So with what's happening in Europe and Ukraine, the European Union, they're moving their transition to renewables much faster. And they're doing it, and they talk about it now from a national defense perspective, getting off Russian fossil fuel. So because of this crisis with fossil fuel prices going up, I don't remember, 60, 70, 80% across Europe, it's going to move their process faster. We all learned, as you said, three years ago, we all faced a nature-based crisis. It was called COVID, but it's still caused by nature. And it caused us to do things we never thought we would do before, work from home, change our supply chain, lots of things, lots of horrible things in terms of lives and livelihood, but some good trends as well. I think we need that kind of clarion mission, like President Kennedy brought out in the race to the moon. This is not a technology problem we have. Yes, we need lots of technology, but it's a, it's a will and investing the time and resources to do it. And if we don't, I mean, by 2030, if we haven't reduced emissions by 50%, that there will be some elements, some places where people won't be able to live. I just finished a book about climate migration, and some of the statistics are pretty sobering. I definitely echo what Stephen said. I agree with all of that. And then in addition, just add definitely targeting the highest emitters. And I think just like that process of like the sunsetting these industries that are no longer serving the planet. You know, you have like the Norway's state owned oil company recently or a few years ago, you know, decided that they would shift their whole business model to become more favorable towards renewable energy. And so I think we need to see that kind of shift on a, a much larger scale, especially in, in the oil and gas industries and, and utilities as well. As investors and participants in today's financial system, what can we all do? both to accelerate change, as well as to participate in the unique opportunity of living through the climate transition? It's to ask that question with every decision. So as individuals, our dollars speak. For the report that Yumika just did a remarkable job doing, which is again on the series website, CERES.org, Responsible Policy Engagement. If you shop at any of those companies, ask them what they're doing about their lobbying. If you own stock, ask them what they're doing in those. So you don't have to be the BlackRock or State Street if you own, you know, 10 shares or something. So as customers, as employees, as engagement, we can all have an impact and we all have to do that. And then clearly for those that control big amount of capital to address these issues, as Yamika said, be, not just because of the series report from 21 versus 22, we've seen progress, which is great. And some, it shows some real leadership from companies, but it's not enough. And this report only focused on the 100 largest because that's where the biggest capital. Well, if you work in the next 100 or the top 500, the top 1,000, same kind of questions would, would apply to your company. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, shifting our mindset to just be more environmentally conscious and power of the consumer is very strong. I think we're seeing that a little bit more where people are, their responses to how ethical companies are, are is influencing the purchases that they're making and, and, you know, changing the decisions that these companies are making. So I think if we keep that up, especially from a climate perspective, then civil society has the opportunity to make a lot of change. You know, we've talked a lot about the engagement with companies and the efforts that companies are making. But there's also a lot of concern about greenwashing. I'm curious if that's something that Sirius works on at all and any ways for consumers or investors to navigate all the information and be able to understand what's greenwashing and what isn't. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Thank you for asking that. And yes, we just submitted a few months ago comments to the SEC. They have another rule 
to address greenwashing on ESG. And so we think there should be a common set of rules, just as there is with many other elements in terms of labeling, so that it's clear if you invest in a fund that says it is a clean fund or a green fund, but you find out that it's really invested in fossil fuels, that's greenwashing. And that is happening today. So we need a common set of rules, a definition that to be public, or at least to be able to have every fund announce, here's how I de- define clean or green or whatever it might be. So then you as a consumer can make that decision. That affects your purchasing of your food and other products you buy, as well as where you invest your money. Sometimes I make my guests feel a little bit uncomfortable by asking them to pick their favorites, but I think it's helpful just for listeners to get a sense of who's out there doing great work. Are there any companies that you really admire and that you're really impressed by their level of commitment and action? So I'm completely biased, but we have both investors and companies that are part of our networks. And they join our networks because they're leaders and they say to us, I want to be pushed. I want to do more. And so if you go to series.org, you can look at a company network list and there's 60 or 70 of those. There's hundreds of investors and they're all doing great jobs. I want to be clear. That doesn't mean they're all perfect. Everyone has more work to do, but there are automobile companies and there are beverage companies and there are agricultural companies that are all leading in certain areas. One company reduced their water usage by 60%. So another company took 10,000 vehicles and are in the process of making it all EVs. So there is great leadership there, people moving fast. Not enough, but there's some great areas and there are many others in every sector. Those are the big companies, but they're also small companies. There are nonprofits, lots of others that are really being very careful with their carbon footprint. Yamika, I'll put you on the same spots. Any favorites or should we just look at the member list? I'll let you know about a few standouts from the benchmark. You know, like Apple is one of the highest scoring companies that we have. I would say they're doing what they can do in terms of assessing the climate risk that they are facing and also engaging consistently so that they are able to meet those targets. And back in 2009, they left a trade association that they were not happy with. And so that kind of leadership, I think it really sends a strong signal. And, you know, Salesforce, they're another leader in the space where they're speaking out very vocally in favor of specific Paris aligned climate policies. They spoke out in favor of the SEC rule. They're really getting involved and and using their brand power for favorable climate action. Thank you both. Before we close, let's make sure listeners get a broader understanding of what else Series is working on. Beyond the Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets, there's several other programs. You mentioned, Stephen, that there's networks for companies, investors, and policymakers that those groups can join. And there's an upcoming conference in March. What else would you like to highlight about what Sirius is working on and ways for listeners to get involved? First, we have a lot of resources that are free on the website. So they can go watch webinars, read reports, read articles, and then take action based on those. We have subject matter experts in many areas from electric vehicles and utilities and biodiversity and water and oil and gas and cement and steel and many others. So again, they're subject matter experts. There is, as you say, the in-person event in March in New York City. would love folks to join. But then we're doing webinars, I don't say every week, but almost every week, dozens and dozens of them. And so there are resources there to look at. And we work with many partners, both in the investor side, on the corporate side, and on the NGO side as part of that. The other way is they can get involved is just to take this responsible policy engagement report that Yumika did such a great job on and write to those companies. Say, I'm a customer of yours. 
And I saw this link and I'm curious, why are you lobbying against your interest or those kinds of things? So everyone can make a big impact. Thanks, Stephen. Yumika, anything you'd like to highlight? No, I really like Stephen's point about, you know, talking to your companies. If you're a shareholder, like use that power that you have. Stakeholder capitalism, very important, I think. Social media, huge power, you know, uh, I think just kind of take advantage of these opportunities that we have. Fantastic. Yamika, Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Best of luck with all the work that you're doing. We'll be following you and cheering you on. Thank you for your leadership and sharing the message. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.